Okay, thanks everybody and welcome to another uh, podcast, uh, the series of conversations with Dr. Cowan and friends. Although uh, I, as I tell my friends, I'd rather be called Tom than Dr. Cowan. And as always, I don't know which episode I'm on and I don't think it really matters. And I have a new friend this, uh, this time. His name is Indra Singh and I think I got that right. And I always tell my guests, if I, I do these little intros, and if I get anything wrong, please correct me. Um, but I was introduced to Indra through a friend of mine who has uh, made a movie uh, who I also interviewed on Medicating Normal. I don't know if you know Wendy, but uh, she wrote a, uh, made a, produced and, and directed a movie that, about the widespread abuse of psychiatric meds around the world, but particularly in the United States. And she said, you should really, you meaning me, I should really look into what Indra is doing because he's documenting a, I would say a massive agrarian revolt in India against the corporatization of, of agriculture in India. And I watched some of the things that you sent me and uh, you could, you know, people could say, so what does this have to do with what's happening in the United States? And I think it has everything to do with what's happening in the United States, because the corporatization of agriculture is a huge problem worldwide. It's, a, it's almost a fait accompli in the United States, and it's in process in, in India. And obviously, we're going to hear more about that. So uh, that... The other thing is there's some very interesting things happening, which I saw as far as what they're doing and how I would say not sick the people are getting. In other words, uh, they're living, uh, they're doing this uh, revolt. That's, I would almost call it a revolution. Uh, not in spite of, uh, you know, this so-called ongoing pandemic, which has essentially no impact on their lives. So with that brief introduction, uh, Indra, welcome uh, to my little show here. And if you could just give, give our uh, listeners a little bit of your background, how you got into this and uh, what you're seeing and uh, just uh, explain to us what is happening there and how you got involved in this. Okay. Thank you, Tom, for this opportunity. Great to have you. I, I'm honored, really. And before I start talking about what's happening in India, like you said, so my introduction to agriculture, I come from a farmer's family. My father uh, farms and I've, uh, our, fa our family lives in a village, which we've been living for the past 500 years. Wow. So we are very rooted in agriculture. I've grown up with orchards and, and wheat and rice and, and mustard. And that's been my, some of my first images as growing up. Yeah. After that, in my, after I finished my graduation, I was mentored by Dr. Vandana Shiva in my All early right, 20s, right, right. who taught me a lot about agriculture and life. I felt bad. Yes. And I also worked as a campaign manager and media spokesperson for her global campaigns and also nationally. After that, I was, uh, I was working with the Indian government as the director for policy and outreach at the National Seed Association of India. Which is, which is a body that is deciding seed policy 
IPR treaties and other international and national seed legislations and other stuff. But when I saw that the, the corporate big act forces were trying to take control of it and through this medium control Indian seed policy, my conscience told me and all the training that I've received in my life told me that I had to stand up for Mother Earth. And I resigned from that post to join the Indian farmers revolution, become using my writing and my documentation to tell the world of the injustices that the farmers are being subjected to. So since March, and even I've been writing on the subject since it began, since uh, Modi government introduced three laws that allow for the corporatization of Indian agriculture. Now, let me give you a little bit of history when I say, what is this corporatization? India, as most Americans would also know, was a British colony like America. And you guys figured it out, I think, quite earlier than us, how to get rid of that British yoke, you know, the, the colonial masters. So India, too, was ruled by the East India Company for about 200 years. That, through forced contracts, caused for farm closures, foreclosures, bankruptcies. They mistreated and exploited the blood of Indian farmers. They made us grow cotton forcefully, indigo, opium, which they used and which, you know, many of these American privateers who were, who were working with uh, the East India Company also, also kind of, these guys came in an alliance and started looting Indian farmers. This is, I'm talking about two, 300 years ago. So and let, after me, that let me stop you for, uh, for a minute there because I, I would love to hear a little bit more. So essentially what we had was very prosperous, thriving villages with people doing basically subsistence agriculture and maybe selling, you know, some excess chickens or, or wheat or, or mustard or something, you know, just on the side. So they took that and they made it into corporate agriculture. Uh, Tom, not really, because we have historical accounts. So that coming from, I've, in my knowledge, there was this world traveler called Ibn Battuta. He is from the 13th century, 13th, 14th century, and he traveled from Morocco to India. Now, in his writings, he's talking about that how Indian farmers are so prosperous and we have so many varieties that we are, we are, we are growing four crops in one year. Wow. And four rice paddy varieties in one year. Wow. So that's, you know, today, the farmers today cannot do that. Yeah. And the nutritional value of these crops was so high that there was no malnutrition and other things. So yeah. India was the golden bird, as they say, and which, which in even later times, I'm talking about 16, 17, 16, 17, uh, 15 to 17th century, occupied more than like 30% like of the world's GDP. So in other words, India... Uh, sorry, sorry. Just one, hold one, one second, please. Okay. But yes, so India had, did what, uh, like 30 to, uh, 30 to 25% of the world's GDP was, 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 was landing up in India. So wow. they said that all the silver that's been mined in, in places like Mexico, during the colonial time, during the Spanish times, or in the, in the, in the, in the silver mines of Japan, ended up in India due to our, our good uh, commerce and agriculture. Wow. Now, this agriculture also included, this also included the muslin cloth, which the Portuguese were after when Vasco da Gama came to India. Yeah. So it was not just subsistence, subsistence agriculture, but a, but, a, but a blooming agriculture. 
Right. And who even, and in modern times, Sir Albert Howard, who basically, could you, could you, could you get that? <laughs> Sir, yeah. uh, Sir Albert Howard, who Dr. Vandana Shiva also talks about, this yeah. British chief scientist, this agrarian scientist who was sent to India. And he said to, to teach Indians the real agriculture or to tell Indian, Indian people, Indian peasants how to farm. He was so impressed by Indian farming that he said, well, I don't have to anything to teach them. They have to teach me a lot because yeah. we are not so advanced. You see, England being a very cold country with maybe only one or two, one growing cycle, really. And here you're, you're near to the equator. There is a lot of rainfall. There is good weather. There is good sun. Agriculture and how using um, a renewable earth cycles, you know, these, these earth cycles, using them and understanding them and then planting. So a lot of bio, the work in biodynamics done by Rudolf Steiner comes, uh, is, is, a, is a collection and a, and a summarization of the practices of Vedic agriculture in India, which he came and learned when he was working with, uh, with organizations in Pondicherry, wow. the Theosophical Society. So I, I am glad, so, so I'm glad you uh, got rid of that misconception because the misconception is that in Indian agriculture was basing it basic and subsistence. And the reality is they were probably the, maybe the most advanced agriculture that's ever been on the planet before the corporatization of agriculture. Yes. So now from there, the story goes on to that the British East India Company landed up in India and they, for them, Indian, maybe we were not even human, you see, yeah. <laughs> given what, what they thought of people and, and how there was slave trading and they never thought that, that, that black people were human. They thought they were chattel. Yeah. So when the first people, they came to India and they said, well, this is another nation to colonize. They didn't think of our rights. They didn't think of our rights of the mother earth or our land. They just said, well, we've planted the flag. Now this is our colony. And yeah. with the gunboat, gunboat diplomacy, they said that, well, what can we best use it for? There were, they were, there were commercial interests in mind. So they said, well, we will, we will destroy the culture that provides nutrition for the villages, that provides nutrition for the animals, for the soil and everything else. And we shall use it for private profit. So you see that the same theme, East India yeah. Company was world's first largest transnational corporation. So then they said, well, take from India. And then there was this opium trade menace, which caused some of the biggest famines in India. You know, Winston Churchill is responsible for killing more people than Hitler. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Many people would not know this, but, but Churchill directly and policies of the Churchill and the British government that time has killed maybe twice or three-folds the number of people that died in World War II. And, and how did they do that? By convincing the people or bribing the people to plant opium or poppy instead of their usual crops? No, they said, if you don't plant it, we shall, we will kill you. Oh, right. <laughs> so not just bribing. They had a more simpler way. Yeah. They right. said you were, that's why it was a forced cultivation. And even Gandhi, and the response to this is, again, slightly going back in Indian history, Gandhi started the first non-civil disobedience movement non-cooperation movement in India, which was against the forced cultivation of indigo in Champaran, Bihar. And I've also visited that place. I've actually seen Gandhi's signs there, like, you know, on a notebook and visitor books. So that was the real soul of India. Yeah. But these corporations, through these illegal contracts, through these forced contracts, violence, uh, subjected the Indian farmer to this. Now, moving from that side to 1947, when the year India got its independence from the British government and the East India Company, really, 
the British government was just a facade for the company. So at that point, the Indian constitution makers decided that we are not going to allow another company to come in and destroy our farmers again. You know, the period of the British rule in India is called Company Raj. Many of the viewers may be familiar with this term. Yeah. So the Indian farmer has living memories of this Company Raj. You know, not many Americans today would, would, would have living memories in their families of how they fought off the British. But in India, that memory is still alive in, yeah. in the oral traditions, in the folklore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we had, we had this great revolution, which, threw, which overthrew the British and freed Indian farmers from, from illegal taxes, from forced cultivation. And the farmer was once again free. But we were not free for long. The story begins that after the British uh, government left India, naturally it was Eisenhower, sorry, not Eisenhower, but FDR, who is reportedly, who's, who's actually, who said to Churchill that now the crown jewels belong to the American empire after the end of the World War II. Right. And Gore Vidal, Gore Vidal talks about this in his many works that how, you know, that famous meet, meeting between Stalin, Churchill and, and FDR, yeah. where FDR rises as the new American emperor and the emperor of the world, saying that Britain, now you take a backseat. And Churchill famously told him, shall I be a lapdog now? And, you know, that conversation is reported yeah. and talked about in many places. So according to Gore Vidal, the American, uh, the American corporation then took over all the British colonies. And that's when American corporations started to enter India. We have most famously the Union Carbide Corporation, which right. caused the biggest gas genocide in the history of the world in 1984. So how that happened, people are still dying from what happened in 1984. They did not ever tell the people that, you know, the fact what is the active ingredient, which could have saved a lot of lives because it was a trade secret. And the funny thing was that Wes Anderson was escorted after this genocide by the chief minister to a plane and then he reached Cape Cod and then he died peacefully there where millions of people who are, who are darker, who, have, who are less privileged are still dying of metagenetic diseases from the pesticide plant, from the blast of the pesticide plant. Wow. You see? Yeah. So that will give a little bit of context that how from the East India Company we moved to the American corporation. And the American corporations were... Union Carbide and any other one? Of course, from Ford to like all the big ag, like yeah, uh, Massey right. D. Ferguson and, and DuPont. And right. you know, corporations by that time were, did not belong to one country. They, they yeah. were transnational. Right. Got it. Right. Okay. So, 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 so that started to happen. But while all this was happening, we must also know, and, and I've written this uh, in my, my Civil Eats article also, that America, this was, and in the American government, we have a proof uh, in the Lyndon Johnson papers that America was closely studying weather patterns and agriculture in India secretly. The American government and even the USDA had many times sent field researchers and other experts to understand Indian agriculture. These, these papers came out much later, but the Americans had a very close watch, not Americans, but American government had a very close watch on how agriculture developed in India. Then came the famous, of course, 1960s, where, where, where cattle wheat, or PL480, which, which was meant only for cattle in, in America, was sent to India to, be, to, to feed humans. That was the biggest indignation our people and our pride and our civilization suffered. Can you describe that a little more? Because I don't know anything about that, that what you're talking about. 
cattle. Of wheat. course. So what happened is that as part of the U.S. food, uh, U.S. aid programs, you know, when the Cold War was happening yeah. between Russia and America, America sent out food grants or food aid to various countries. Right. So India was recipient of, of a few years of such, of such food aid. Right. In India, you know, we did not only eat wheat. We had many, many other varieties and many millets, many, many kinds of legumes, which are not part of the American or the European diet. So we were, we, were, we were happy with that. But then the public distribution system, which, which is, uh, you know, in Roman times, like in Roman times, there was a public distribution system through right. which people who are less privileged could go there and get wheat or flour at a cheaper rate. So the modern version of that, you know, every country has that. America has food stamps and other countries have other kind of provisions. But India has a public distribution system, which uh, food distribution system, which lacked wheat at that time. So wheat was, was, was loaded and inferior quality wheat, which the American farmers grew for, for their cattle, actually. It is a reddish color wheat, which is not of great, great quality, was exported to India and dumped on India. Yeah. Okay, that's a little bit of history. But once India accepted that, like I've already said in my article, with the carrot came the stick and then started this, this great industrial agriculture uh, program where the U.S. said, now you have to accept Indian, uh, where you have to now accept industrial agriculture and the birth of the Green Revolution happened. We have Norman Borlaug, who was funded by, like we know today, by the Rockefeller Center, by DARPA and other organizations to go and plant industrial agriculture in India. This is 1960s and early uh, 1970s. This was a year when the unsettling of India started. You know, the, the system of agriculture, which was talked about by Sir Albert Howard and in the past of the 13th century by Ibn Battuta, started to be destroyed by these industrial chemicals, which were like steroids or highly intoxicating drugs or like, or basically like amphetamine that you give to the soil and the soil starts to act really fast and produce things really fast. But as soon as the cr- it crashes, then it's, a f- then the soil is just dead. Yeah. So essentially, uh, it sounds like the, the impetus for this was twofold. One was essentially a subsidy for American transnational corporations. And two, it was essentially to weaken the health of the Indian people through feeding them inferior food. And once the next step after that was to essentially co-opt their system of agriculture to create essentially inferior soil? Well, if I was to put it more simply, it was more, more of a mafia tactic, if you yeah. understand. You first create a, an artificial scarcity, which you yourself have helped create. Right. <laughs> Once the artificial scarcity is there, you, you introduce a, a solution which you profit from. Right, exactly. But that, but that solution seeds the next disease. Right. Okay, so what's the next disease after that? So now we've got corporate agriculture with their pesticides and with their gas plants, and eventually then what happens next? What happens next is, is, is another 30 years pass by, and this in, the scheme of industrial agriculture now occupies all the major agriculture states of India. What has happened now is what exactly happened in, in America after World War II, where there was overproduction, where the prices fell, 
where there were a lot of farming, where, where there were a lot of farming families who were still attached to the land. Agriculture was still the main occupation. Yeah. So that is the kind of scenario which is emerged in India right now, where there's overproduction. We are very, we are self-sufficient in all food and other stuff. But now, because of overproduction, there are falling prices. The, the soil is completely depleted. The heavy use of pesticides and, and fertilizers is resulting in, in major cancer and other foodstyle-related diseases, not just within the farming families, but right. also within all over India. India is going to be, I think, the diabetic capital of the world by 2030. We are right. already uh, the world's cancer, the biggest people with the maximum number of cancers in the world. Sugar, blood pressure. So... So all that started to happen in India 30 years after, 30 to 40 years after the Green Revolution was introduced. Right. You know, another new trend that has started in India is that impotence. Men who were like healthy and, 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 could, and you know, earlier could have, have babies for a long time start to get impotent when they're 25, 30. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And, and, and women who, are, who could basically in India, there, there used to be news reports of even in my grandmother's generation that women who could bear children till the time they were 50, you see? Yeah. Cannot even bear children when they are 32 now. Yeah. You know, so, this, this, this reminds me of, of uh, the famous Price Pottinger studies with cats that they found that if they feed, fed cats uh, raw raw milk and raw meat, they were fine for generation after generation. And then they would feed them abnormal milk and meat, like cooked and denatured. And they went through a very specific sequence of events. The first generation, they had allergies and things like that. Second generation, they had degenerative disease. Third generation, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. Fourth generation, they became infertile. Mm-hmm. And also antisocial. <laughs> so crazy infertile cats is the consequence of four generations of denatured food. And it's interesting because in the United States, we're about four generations after the big change in diet. I think India is probably around three. So yes, they're, so- they're starting to see this. But I'll now plug all this back. How does all this relate to the farmer revolution in India? Right. So, so just the history of all this, this is just to give the viewers a history. And I know this could be a little tedious, but, but it's important oh, it's to understand. Fabulous. It's important yes. to understand that India, Indian farmers were protected and Indian agriculture sector was protected by the constitution. And so that there, cannot, there can never ever be a new company Raj, which comes and takes control of our agriculture. Right. Okay. Now, in, the, in using COVID as, as a shield, you know, India still follows a British parliamentary system where there are two houses in which elected representatives uh, participate. This time, the Modi government has a maximum uh, number of representatives within the lower house and also recently in the upper house of parliament. Like you have the Congress and the Senate. Yeah. Similarly, India has, but it's a British style of uh, parliamentary, of the right. parliament. Okay. So now what happened is he used an emergency decree to introduce these three laws first, which allows for for unlimited hoarding or stocking by agro-processors and food processors. If that makes the significance of that. Okay. The significance of this is that earlier in India, you could not hoard stocks or or grain or vegetables or fruit beyond a certain capacity. 
because then that gives way for black marketeering or price manipulation by a few people. Right, got it. So, for example, what happened in America is that since the 1980s, four corporations have been controlling everything that the American farmers grow. You know, corporations like Cargill, Tyson Food. Yeah. You know, they control. It doesn't matter who the farmer is. The farmer is at best a farmhand on their own property. Right. Whereas the maximum profit is stored by these people who not only own the the credit facilities, the silos, the supermarkets. They control even the credit and finance services. So the farmer has no choice but to buy everything from them at their rates and sell back to them at the rate that they want to buy at. Okay, yeah. because these corporations have the power to hoard, for example, all the produce of the state of Alabama. They can just hoard overnight. You know, they won't have any problems in getting their ten thousand ships to a to a port, take all the grain that Alabama grows, put it in there, and cart it off to any other country they want to. You see? Yeah. And one or two corporations control it. And similarly with American meat industry. Now, yeah. the second law which the Indian government used. was which allowed for the corporate corporate uh, corporate contracts to be legally valid now like i have already explained india being under the the east india company right for 200 years we did not indian farmers had to be protected from corporate cotton contracts now any of any farmer or any american farmer watching this or listening to this exactly knows how devious these company contracts can be because they tell you first they contract you and tell you that well we want x amount of wheat from your farm or x amount of chicken and you have to do it as per our recommendations right. the technology we tell you yes. and if it, and if it doesn't meet the grade that we want to buy we won't give you the price that we that we agreed upon right you see yeah and agriculture is not like uh, is not an it's not a machine you see sometimes two potatoes can be of different sizes right But is it fair to kind of reject one potato and take the other one? But the farmer that they're actually dictating the terms of how you grow, and by the way, selling you the seeds and the fertilizers and the pesticides and herbicides to that you have to use in order to grow those. Yes. So, and then if you don't do that, if you don't do that, then you can be taken to court. Yes. and if you if you fail to give them the produce that that was decided on the contract you see they can yeah. even take and take possession of your land yeah and there are foreclosures and other things then then start so this is and now for the first time in india these corporate contracts have legal validity and the other problem with this was that whereas it's legally valid for the corporations the farmers you know the the right the constitutional right to legal remedies had been taken away from indian farmers and mind you 70% of india's population is farmers right. so that's above 400 sorry 700 million people can you imagine wow so you and take this was away a, uh, essentially a new law uh, passed by the modi government recently yes wow okay and then the third one was that now corporations the corporations could buy directly from farmers earlier this was not allowed understanding that that the that the individual farmer has no bargaining power with a large corporation you see yeah. indian farmers were protected and there were there was an intermediary level which which consisted which was created so that there were some checks and balances to farmer getting the right price and not being overtaken by the corporation 
in other words, the farmers could could organize into a co-op or something. And that, or there were these other levels. So, for example, you were a farmer. You sold to a local trader, a government-regulated trader, right? And yeah. then that trader sorts out the produce and sells it off to whoever he wants to, he or she wants to. Yeah. But but it was but the corporation could not buy directly from the farmer because seeing the world, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel and know that well, corporations are bad for farmers. <laughs> yeah. You see? Yeah. Got it. So these were the three laws which were introduced by the Modi government in a very high-handed manner, even in the parliament. Uh, and I would just uh, the COVID relief package was passed in the American Senate. Right. Right. Where where, where they asked for a, a voice vote and that was not recorded, and then, then they dismissed it. And Jimmy Dore has a great show about it. It's how how constitutional processes were kind of sidelined. Right. Exactly the same way. When these laws were passed, the Indian parliamentarians asked for a voice vote, a recorded voice vote, which the Speaker of the House denied. Wow. So the modus operandi also of the corporations was the same, what they did in America, the same they did in India, but two right. different issues. Okay, so what did the farmers decide to do about this? Well, the farmers, you see, the farmers having been suffered under the Indian, like by the, by the American corporations, by companies like Cargill and Monsanto and Bayer, they were up in arms and they organized the largest ever Occupy movement in the world. Let me tell you, people, this is millions and millions of people who've camped outside Delhi's four borders over, this is, we've, we're over like 120 days since the farmers have reached and encamped at Delhi. They started the largest grassroots movement, going to villages, house to house. And keep in mind, you know, the, the pandemic is on. The world over, people are scared of meeting people and touching their hand and eating in their house and entering their houses. Here, the largest union strike began when farmers from Punjab and Haryana started to walk from like 300, 400 kilometers. First, they organized within their villages, started collecting donations, started collecting uh, wheat and, and uh, other like food, food crop, water, started getting transportation under, uh, all in line and started this massive march. So imagine, in other words, let me just imagine uh, like a medieval army, like a medieval peace army that's, that's, that's collecting the supplies, that's, that's taking care of the logistics. And that starts from the villages in Punjab, which is the western, uh, northwestern state in India, and moving towards the national capital. These hordes. So they decided, did, did, they, did they keep some people at home to take care of their farms? Or they just yes. said, we're done with this farming until they give us the, uh, the, the rights that we want. Yes. What, what, there was a system of rotation decided and all the elderly people, like, you know, the world over the elderly people are running scared that they may catch COVID. But this movement was led by, uh, by elderly people, you know, people above 65, 70. I personally have met people who are 90 years old, who've been sitting there for the past 110 days, who in the Indian winter brazed, uh, basically braved the water cannons and tear gases and, you know, roadblocks and, and barbed wires and police violence and been marching for three, 350, 500 kilometers to reach Delhi, who've been sleeping on the roads, who've been, you know, there've been blizzards, there've been, uh, there've been, there've been rainfall during the winter, which is also unusual. Uh, that has happened. 200 of them have died because of like, you know, the harsh weather conditions. 
Yeah. And and they've led from the front, you know, the elderly. And so basically what so again correct me if I'm wrong. The the farmers knew saw what was happening, saw they were going to be uh essentially, you know, taken over again, colonized again and disenfranchised again and said we're not doing this anymore. We're going to organize ourselves and and actually work out the logistics of this peace army and march to Delhi and tell the people we're not taking this anymore. And we're talking about in the millions of people. Yes, and you know, Tom, that's not even the the, the brilliance. The real brilliance of the movement comes that how in a matter of one day, you know, like in America, corporate interests control the Indian government also. Yeah. Okay, and that's why I keep repeating the word "occupy" movement. So, in a matter of one month, which the united opposition of of political parties in India could not do, they in one month's time started the boycott of two corporations that are, you know, the masters of the Modi government. So, in a matter of one month, they linked the government, they exposed the political masters, and they started a complete boycott of all of their products. So, gas stations. uh stores that were owned by uh, those companies or the mobile network that was owned by those companies there was a complete boycott you know people people did not allow there were there was an occupy so people came in occupied petrol pumps that were run by this company and and told people not to buy petrol from there so this also has a great economic side that the people quickly realized and today these two corporations are are booed wherever wherever you talk of farmer wherever you meet farmers every farmer knows that how corporate interests control the modi government and have exposed them yeah so so there there's a couple interesting things so number one it sounds like um this farmers movement which you're talking about millions of people here millions yes um, millions they, they have no interest in this narrative about everybody's going to get sick because of this so called coronavirus they are saying essentially the heck with that we are going to do what we need to do as human beings and farmers in india yes but tom before i answer your question just for the viewers i know i've shared some photos with you and some other videos and yeah. also i'm sure you'll you'll plug them in later for them to also see what's happening but we have to understand a day at a life in a protest before i answer your question about the sickness bit That's okay fine. yeah so what is happening and how the farmers are living at least in delhi's borders is that there is a highway which which runs and enters delhi at at some of the most arterial points which is the main traffic road or highway that enters the city okay yeah. so the farmers have encamped all along the highway and before the delhi's border so they are sleeping on the roads they are sleeping on makeshift tents okay they are what what they do is they get up in the morning they cook their own food they've dug out their own bathrooms they are they are living like a real medieval army you know so so they're cooking their own food they have limited supplies they are being resupplied by the neighboring villages because delhi is surrounded by agricultural villages yeah. which are still growing crops yeah. so milk is coming in every day free vegetables are coming in from the nearby villages they have very extensive supply lines that are supplying these are these millions of people you know wow yeah okay and yeah. every day everyone's making the same food and there are these free free food camps so no matter who you are you know if you if you know if you are like the the wretched of the earth you know like i can't i can't explain this any better to a western audience but rag pickers children people who've had no food people who 
who own nothing, don't even get one hot meal a day since the farmers have encamped, are be getting free meals by the farmers, you know. So these farmers run these free langars where anybody can come, yeah. get food. Even if I have nothing today, I can go to their protest sites and I'll get food, I'll get a tent to share, I'll get three hot meals. You know, I've seen children who got a hot meal, you know, during New Year's. I don't even remember when, when these children got like a, a hot meal on New Year's for, you know, three times on 31st or 30 or, or on the 1st of January. Yeah. You know, since the farmers have encamped, they've changed the social dynamics. When the world was, was fighting fear and psychosis and I'll not touch you and brother was turned against brother yeah. and sister was turned against brother and wife against husband and, and, and the whole family was destroyed by fear. Yeah. They presented a, a front which was filled with love and camaraderie, wow. which did not want anything from you, which only gave you something. Wow. And you know, I believe me, when I say these things, there are goosebumps. It's an electrifying feeling of love that, that pulsates through me when I think about these thoughts. Yeah. Because, and this is the life that they're living. So they offer free food, they offer free tea, they offer free medicines, free clothing to anybody who comes there. Yeah. And they are, are literally movement. recreating the way human society should work. Yes. Yes. You know, it's the gift economy. I think many people talk about the gift economy and in the abstract, if yeah. you want to see the gift economy in practice, come here, you know, in like very, very popular, like uh, singers in Punjabi, you know, they, they come, they hide their face and they are sweeping the street. You know, these guys are multimillionaires and they come and they are sweeping the, the roads where these people are living because it's a feeling of, of, of seva as they say, or service or religious service, you know, like many of my, and you, you, it sounds like have the, I would almost say privilege of being the person who's documenting this and explaining what's happening to the world. I would say, yes, I've been extremely fortunate that mother earth has given me this chance and aligned me with people like yourself and other places through which my gifts can be utilized to help the farmers. And do you have a sense of where they're going with this? Like, I, but, but Tom, once again, sorry, let me just backtrack yeah. a little bit. I got a, slightly talking about a different tangent there. But no, now, I, and, and that was amazing because even as you were talking, like I could feel the, the literally the tears welling up in my, in my I don't know what, uh, just because I think if there's anything I want to tell people or have people hear, this, it is actually possible. We're told that this is the only way human beings can live with, you know, being under domination and doing what we're told and being afraid. And as you say, you know, you're afraid of grandmother and you can't hug your child. This is not the only way to live. These people have decided just out of love and courage, this is not the way we're going to live our life, period. Yes. And guess how they're sleeping, you know, there are, there are 10 people who are sleeping in one tractor trolley. There are 10 people who are 10 to 20 people sleeping next to each other in tents, in, in encampments, in plastic tents. So can you imagine like thousands of people sleeping together, uh, drinking water together with no masks, no nothing. No nothing. And not sick. And if, if there's any medicine that they're using, it's the medicine of courage and love. 
well, you know, I've interviewed doctors at these sites, Tom. I've interviewed paramedical workers there. And guess what they all have to say? They say that there has not even been one single case of corona that's been reported there. There are no containment zones. And the largest problem they've experienced is a waterborne diseases because the government of India shut down the water supply to these places, shut down electricity. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And not even one case of corona. Can you imagine that? I was, this has shook me. Being a person who knows nothing about virology or medical, you know, my, my training has been completely in something else. But the, from the doctor's mouth, I'm hearing this. I'm seeing this from my own eyes. Yeah. Tens and thousands of people and no one's scared. No one's wearing a mask. They're telling me things like, well, we know that there is a corona, but corona is our friend because it's not affected us yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can tell them there is no corona and their friends are each other and what's in their heart because that's what's protecting them. So ha- having said that, where, where are they going with this? Like, wh- I, I mean, it, and, and, and I say that it, even knowing it's kind of a stupid question because I'm not sure they have to have a quote goal, but is there, is there some end game? Is there some, here's what we want to see happen here. Um, okay. Before I answer that, Tom, we need to understand that from, from at a meta level, of course, there are certain goals that they want the corporatization laws that right. the Modi government introduced to be repealed. Right. Okay. Yeah. And new laws to be introduced that guarantee price support and, and price assurance for the Indian farmers. Right. Okay. Keep in mind that 86% of Indian farmers have less than one acre of land. Imagine that. Yeah. And most of the most of these farmers are still categorized into small family farms and agriculture in India is not really an occupation. It's, it's a livelihood. Yeah. It's, it's not just that I do this for money. I do this because my grandfather did it. My, my ancestors did it. And I'm only borrowing this land from my future generation. Right. So there is a sense of religious duty attached to it. Right. It's the essential human activity. Yes. Feeding one's family and caring for the land. That's what human beings do. So it's something what Wendell Berry talks about in his Unsettling of America, you know, the kind of land ethic, which Wendell Berry talks about in what the American farmers had pre-World War II, which, you know, and which is slowly being destroyed by corporatization. Right. So that is the kind of feeling. Now, that's one of the main, main goals, okay, to stop the corporatization, stop the corporate auction of the land, which is still their mother, you know, in yeah. India, children, like the farmer, he loves or she loves their child. But the land, they love even more than the child. Keep that in mind. Because the land is equivalent to the mother. Yeah. You see, keep that. I think many American viewers may not understand this or know this. But any farmers, you know, who are listening to this and who are from Iowa, who are from the farming barrels, they exactly know that what farming meant to their grandfathers, to the grandmothers, and how much the American farmer has fought for that land, you know. Yeah. When we talk about Howard Zinn and the first colonists arrived in America, they didn't know how to farm. They were dying of starvation. And from that day in Virginia, today, American farmers are leading the way where it comes to permaculture or biodynamic agriculture or regenerative agriculture. So the American people have strived and they've, they've built a new agriculture, you see. But, but at a meta level now, what this farmer revolution actually represents is the earth fighting back 
against the oppression against her and against so many of us innocent people got it you know what this what this farmer revolution exposes is not just the corporatization agenda but it also exposes in my opinion this is even even if you keep me out of it the farmers themselves understand that it exposes the whole corona agenda in a big way yeah they know that there are no fatalities they know that if this virus is even if it however the whatever form it is in it's it's not harmful yeah and this whole lockdown the shutdown and the fear that was being created is completely unnecessary and yeah. 100 days of delhi border proves that yeah. and you know i've not only spent time in delhi i've been traveling the country with the farmer leaders going to different rallies where thousands and thousands of people have come not even one person is wearing a mask yeah the only person who are wearing people who are wearing the masks are the policemen you see <laughs> and and in certain places even the police are not wearing masks yeah the police and probably the government officials if they so, so no but see this is a great moment and why this is a great moment because as chris hedges talks about in his book the wages of rebellion you know it's a great book for anybody who wants to understand non like uh, non violent um, movements and and the non violent way to kind of fight he talks about this conversion that your enemy seeing your moral kind of superiority converts from the truth you know yeah. bernie sanders tried to talk about this in his election campaigns against like hillary clinton when he said you know the, even the police is us yeah so today this farmer revolution has managed to convert the police and the paramilitary of india onto their side yeah so the government is completely exposed that even if they pass an order to evict the farmers the the police will refuse got it and so essentially the farmers are acting for the spokesman for the earth the earth or is rather, saying we need a it's it's essentially this is a spiritual quest there's no other way to put it this is a this, the earth is saying we need a, a new way of thinking we need a new way of being and this the farmers are essentially taking up that task and being the spokesman for the earth Tom, I see no other way. You know, I I believe in I believe in something. You know, these creative forces which which guide human behavior. They have been the sages of our time. They've been gods. They've been they've been termed different names in different religions of the world. But there is this creative force that is the force of of David. That is the force of uh, of Martin Luther King, or that is the force of of the Buddha. You yeah. see? Yeah. These are forces that have that have that have that have guided humanity for for a better future so that force whatever that force is that may be called by different people different things but that force is is making things come together because how else how else can you know these these farmers come together organize and none of them are sick how right. come all these farmers are gaining getting so much support yeah. how come you know i really believe that how come you and me are talking about the farmer revolution right because it it because it is the revolution of our time it is the yes it is the therapy for transhumanism essentially for the merger of humans with machines you're talking about the merger of humans with the divine that's the difference yes 
and see thomas berry talks about it the very great environmental like thinker and philosopher and eco theologian he talks about that how humans are now to enter a new age yeah an ecozonic age yeah where humans become real stewards of the land as as uh, leo as as many as many of as leo aldo uh, sorry this great american leo aldo uh, leopold yeah. aldo leopold talks oh, about right, right. And, so and i th- i think is you know i'm going to say a story which i've which i've said before it may resonate with you because i also think we we shouldn't necessarily underestimate the what i'm going to call the adversary now even though i understand that the adversary may be our friend or we need we need to be the adversary to be a friend and i actually heard about this from it, it was a the us army manual in somewhere around 1825 and they were talking about the problem of prisoner exchange so when they would go out into the frontier they would sometimes capture the native americans and sometimes the native americans would capture some of the us soldiers and then they would come time to have an exchange of the prisoners right uh and they would release the native people and they would run back to their tribe and then they would release the us army soldiers and they wouldn't go back to the us army <laughs> they would say no we we like it better here we're going to stay so the the us army manual had a whole section on how to entice the soldiers back to their their company like give them money and women and all these things and they said by the way it probably won't work because humans will always opt for freedom and connection with the the land and their fellow human beings ultimately more than money and all these other superficial things so they just finished by saying you know this will be a problem for you and <laughs> that's sort of wh- where we are if if the reality is if people are allowed to be free and be stewards of the land and stewards of each other they will actually always choose that that's just the reality unless somebody comes along and uses the tactics that you're talking about that have been used for hundreds of years bribery and weapons and you know enslavement and corporate uh cor- contracts all these techniques that keep people from choosing what they always choose uh, given their own devices and so i you know we all have to be aware of that that there will they they this quest for freedom won't won't it's going to meet roadblocks right you know that yes that's just the nature of of humanity and i would almost say as it should be because if it was just given to us easily it, we would run the risk and we may not understand what we just want may i add something there absolutely so when the british left india they have these massive colonial buildings okay and one of the one of the main centers where the prime minister sits in in the prime minister's office is there they have left a little 
staying on, onto the main gateway. And it reads like, liberty will never descend onto the people. People will have to always rise up to liberty. Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, there's all kinds of sayings like that. A people who doesn't fight for their own freedom and liberty basically doesn't deserve it. And I, I, I am just, uh, I'm just so happy to that we did this and that you've told us about this amazing story of what's actually happening that literally nobody knows about in this country. We're so enclosed in our own fear and, and self-absorption that we don't realize that the revolution is actually happening in one of the birthplaces of, of, of humanity, really. And so uh, is there any, maybe we can finish by saying, what can people do to find out more or contribute or some show support or what, what, where can people go? And we'll put some maybe videos and links on our, on our website and in this, but anywhere people can go to find out more or even to show their support. Okay. So Tom, I'm going to share after this uh, a link of some websites because most yeah, of this work is in, in, in vernacular languages. So it's not even Hindi, it's other languages that the, the major material is coming out. Yeah. But there are some English websites that are regularly reporting on this. Uh, I'm also, I've been writing on this issue for now about three, four months now, just on the farmer revolution and earlier about the laws. And I can even give you some other authors that the Western audiences can follow. Yeah. Okay. But something what, what people can do in, at an individual capacity is first write to any Indian embassy, write to any Indian government body in, in your area saying that we support the farmers and you have to take these laws back. You know, that's number one. Tweet yeah. about it if you can. And if you can't even do that, I, and you know, not everyone can do that. And I really respect that also. The courage to know what you can do and not do is, is also a great virtue. So then I request you to talk at least about the Indian farmer revolution for one day with your friends. Yeah. Because it's not about Indian farmers only. See, yeah. if you can subvert democracy and, so, and, and kill and finish off millions of Indian farmers, let me tell you, people, whoever you're watching, whoever you are, you are next. Because yes. if they can kill the force and, and will of millions of people, no matter how much money you have, remember the 1% always has more. <laughs> and, and when push comes to the shove, either we all go down together or there's no future at all. You know, we have to resist because it's a moral imperative. Yeah. The farmers of America and the farmers of India are being robbed and exploited by the same people. Yes. You know, the difference is not of, of skin or race or language. The only difference there is in the world is, is lack of love and love. You see? Yeah. If you love yourself and if you love earth, there is no way you can hate anybody else in the world. Because by referring to yourself, you're referring to them. This universe is all of us combined. So I say that do not send away these hate energies which is corona and other stuff is causing use this moment to again rediscover your neighbor use this moment to all my catholic and all to my christian friends understand what jesus really said about love yeah to all to all people who are listening to this whoever's taught about love whether you follow the buddha you follow the sufis or you follow african religions just understand that love is something that the world needs a lot. We need the time 
to hug again. We need to love and feel each other again. We need to unmask and see each other for who we truly are yes. and not be driven by hate, fear, and this, you know, there's this fear and flight attitude all the time, you know, this fight and flight attitude all the time. We need to tell the hormone system to, to just cool down a little bit, hold the person next to you, their hand, and breathe and feel love, which is yeah. missing from the world. Because okay. we all are one. There you go. I, I am so honored to have this talk. And um, yeah, send us the links and keep in touch. And if there's anything we can do for support, please let me know. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye.